In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we welcome you to the All Souls Sermon Podcast. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The nuns taught us that there are two ways through life, the way of nature and the way of grace. You have to choose which one you'll follow. These words are spoken by one of the characters in The Tree of Life, the profound and beautiful film by Terence Malick. And the film continues to develop this contrast between the two ways as follows. Grace does not try to please itself, accepts being slighted, forgotten, disliked, accepts insults and injuries. Nature only wants to please itself, get others to please it too, likes to lord it over them, to have its own way. It finds reasons to be unhappy when the world is shining around it, and love is smiling through all things. There are two ways through life, the way of nature and the way of grace. This contrast between two ways illuminates today's collect and lessons. You could say that the collect describes the way of nature when it speaks of the unruly wills and affections of sinful men, and that the collect also gestures towards the way of grace when it requests God to order our unruly wills and affections by granting that we might love the thing which thou commandest and desire that which thou dost promise. So too with the lessons. You could say that the parable of the wicked tenants in the gospel illustrates the way of nature. And you could also say that the epistle, in it, St. Paul himself exemplifies the way of grace. So let's turn first to the gospel to follow this path of inquiry. St. Luke gives us Jesus' parable of the wicked tenants. It's a parable in which the unruly wills and affections of sinful men are on full and sordid display. The husbandmen, or tenants in the parable, follow the way of nature. They only want to please themselves, to have their own way. They have been entrusted with the care of another man's vineyard, but they have determined to exploit that trust, to seize what is not their own. And they are prepared to use force. Three times they violently repel the servants of the owner when they come seeking what belongs by right to the owner, namely some of the fruits of the vineyard. They abandon all restraints in their pursuit of their own desires, their own will to power. They are willing even to murder the Lord's beloved son. They cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. The parable is Jesus' pointed critique of the Jerusalem leadership, the chief priests and the scribes, and they understand it as such. They perceived that he had spoken this parable against them, the text says. But it does not deter them from their opposition to Jesus. Indeed, from this point forward, they do not relent from opposing Jesus even unto death. In doing this, they become like the wicked tenants 
who cast the beloved son out of the vineyard and killed him. With because of their opposition to Jesus, the beloved son of the father, that he will be crucified outside the city gate. The churches likewise understood the parable as an allegory about salvation history, in which the owner of the vineyard is God, the vineyard itself is Israel, the people of God, the tenants are the leaders of Israel. The servants sent by the owner are the prophets who came to preach repentance to Israel. The beloved son is Jesus. The others to whom the owner will entrust the vineyard are Christ and his apostles and their successors. The biblical warrant for this analogy is the image of the vineyard standing for the people of Israel, which is frequent throughout the scriptures. Most famously, perhaps, in a section from the book of Isaiah, sometimes called the Song of the Vineyard. It's from the fifth chapter of Isaiah, and it goes like this. Let me sing for my beloved a love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He digged it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And then again, a little bit later, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. The Lord looks for his people Israel to yield grapes, as it were. To bear the fruit of justice and righteousness. The works of love, to walk in the way of grace. But instead of this sweet fruit, the Lord finds only wild grapes the bitter fruit of evil, the outcome of the way of nature, bloodshed, and the cries of the oppressed. And Isaiah warns, the Lord will abandon them to desolation unless they repent. Now Isaiah's Song of the Vineyard is addressed to Israel in the time of exile, and the chief priests and scribes in Jesus' day were right to recognize that Jesus had spoken this parable against them. But that does not let us off the hook so easily. We, too, are also addressed by this word of God. We, too, are also searched out by his word. And when the Lord comes looking to us, comes to us looking for grapes, looking for righteousness, for justice, expecting to find the fruit of grace, faith working through love, What will he find? Are we not more like the wicked tenants than we would like to imagine? Feeding what is the Lord's as if it were our own. Refusing to cede control of certain corners of our heart. Refusing to let go of certain favored sins. Am I not like those tenants, insofar as I only want to please myself, to get others to please me, to lord it over others, to have my own way, to find reasons to be unhappy when the world is shining around me? 
In April 1940, when the world was at war, C.S. Lewis wrote a letter to a Benedictine monk named Bede Griffiths. In that letter, Lewis wrestled with the difficulty of learning to pray, as our Lord teaches us, for our enemies, to pray sincerely for our enemies, to really pray for them and to mean it, which is especially difficult in wartime. He says, when you pray for Hitler and Stalin, how do you actually teach yourself to make the prayer real? And Lewis continues, two things that help me, he says, are A, a continual grasp of the idea that one is only joining one's feeble little voice to the perpetual intercession of Christ, who died for these very men, and B, a recollection as firm as one can make it of all one's own cruelty, which might have blossomed under different conditions into something terrible. You and I, he says, are not at bottom so different from these ghastly creatures. My dear brothers and sisters, I'm afraid that he is right about that. It's true that you and I are not so different from such ghastly creatures. It's true that our wills and affections are unruly, that we cannot order them rightly by ourselves, that we have no power of ourselves to help ourselves, as the prayer book says. But it's also true, and it's the surest truth that there is, that our Lord is able to save us and help us. That our Lord's grace is sufficient to order our unruly wills and affections, to teach us to love what he commands, to teach us to desire what he promises. It's true that our Savior, by his cross and precious blood, has redeemed us, that by his grace we are able to triumph over every evil and to live no longer to ourselves, but unto him who died for us and rose again. And the epistle lesson today witnesses to that truth, to the truth of the gospel, by showing the power of God at work in the life of one man, by testifying to the power of God to transform the unruly wills and affections of sinful men, to rescue us from the way of nature, and to set us in the way of grace. St. Paul shows us what it looks like to walk in the way of grace, what it looks like when the grace of God makes us to desire and to love rightly, what it looks like to learn to love nothing more than the love of Christ. I count everything as loss, the apostle proclaims, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that if possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already made perfect, he says, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brethren, 
He says, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is what it looks like when our Lord begins to order the unruly wills and affections of a sinful man. This is the example that we are to imitate with God's help. This is what, we, what it means to pray as we sing in the hymn, Thou didst give thyself for me, now I give myself to thee. This is what we are to love and desire above all else, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the way of grace. About the same time that C.S. Lewis was writing that letter of his, another Englishman, the great William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, wrote a prayer that has entered into the prayer book as a prayer of self-dedication. It's a prayer that asks God to set us in the way of grace, to give us the grace to give ourselves wholly to him who loved us and gave himself for us. And I want to close with that prayer this morning, and I hope that you'll join me in praying it. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to thee, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills, that we may be wholly thine, utterly dedicated unto thee. And then use us, we pray thee, as thou wilt, and always to thy glory and the welfare of thy people, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of All Souls Episcopal Church. For service times and more information, go to allsoulsokc.com. God be with you.